This podcast is part of the C-Suite Radio Network, turning the volume up on business. Hello, and welcome to the Plugged In Podcast, where we talk with founders and CEOs in order to bring you the real stories of failures and triumphs, highs and lows they've experienced on their journey toward success. We will go in-depth with our guests to give you insights into how they have taken an idea from concept to realization, making those first key hires to building the right team, scaling revenues, how they overcame obstacles, and much more as we learn how they achieve success. This is the podcast that you want to subscribe to if you want to learn how to succeed. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Plugged In. I'm Ellie Mandelbaum, industry veteran who decided to do more than just listen to podcasts, but actually start one in which I interview people much smarter than me. In this episode, we are speaking with Jay Prasad, I hope I pronounced your name correctly, Chief Strategy Officer of VideoAmp, a software and data solutions company that focuses on optimizing cross-platform advertising, and we will get into that for those who may not fully understand what that means. Their software and data solution enables advertisers to plan, buy, and measure the success of deduplicated and precisely targeted campaigns that reach linear TV, VOD, OTT, and digital audiences. VideoAmp is backed by MediaOcean, RTL Group, and six other top VC firms. They most recently uh, closed a $70 million finance around. Congrats on that, Jay. Um, prior to, to VideoAmp, uh, Jay served as VP of Global Business Development at TubeMogul. We led the company's launch of programmatic TV, data, and supply partnerships, as well as their international partnership teams in the U.S., EU, Japan, and Southeast Asia. You've done a lot so far. <laughs> yeah. And your career is still going strong. Previously, he led the strategic development at Freewheel, Focus on broadcasters' distribution to digital and OTT platforms. Jay, welcome to the show. I hope I covered everything. And if not, why don't you fill in some of the blanks on your background? Yeah, I think uh, I think you've got our PR spec there <laughs> that has a, a bit of a bio written out. Yeah, yeah. But I'm sure there's other things that you you know. Yeah, yeah. I, I started my career in in consulting, so coming out of uh, the University of Wisconsin with. Uh, a stint over at the University of London, focusing on international business and economics. I decided to jump into the, the world of consulting, working for Ernst & Young and the uh, late, great Arthur Anderson business consulting. And uh, consulting was a great boot camp. I think it really teaches you uh, how business actually works, what it means to actually create quality deliverables, project management, learning basic early tools like how to write macros in Excel and learning early programming languages. So it was a, it was a great boot camp, but also I realized uh, after a couple of years of it that it wasn't necessarily my passion. So I, I jumped into entrepreneurship right on the heels of consulting back uh, in my, in my early twenties <laughs> and uh, was able to build and um, survive for a bit the, the first dot-com wave an ultimate crash. So learning, learned a lot of lessons from the, from the first time around on what a digital business is and all the, the basic foundational technologies and principles in which today's whole internet and now mobile uh, is all built on, right? It's about user experiences and being able to make transactions happen. It's uh, how, to, how to understand what the flow of marketing looks like in digital. These were all really brand new paradigms back in the in the early 2000s yeah and, and so you know with that within why I mean it'll give you a, give you a good you know understanding of business is there anything that you took from that and stayed with you today yeah I mean I think um, 
it's a very humbling experience. You, know, you come out of school and you feel like you've learned a lot and you have a lot to offer. And then you give your first presentation or your first written analysis of something and it is completely ripped apart. <laughs> and, you know, you, you realize that you don't know nearly as much as you thought you did. And it's part of the, I think, part of the culture of consulting, right? It's a, a bit of the break you down to build you back up. Everyone that comes in there is going to be pretty high octane and done well in school, but that doesn't mean you're ready to be successful in business. So that was a humbling and good lesson. <laughs> yeah, I, I think we've all been there, you know, in terms of that, uh, a little bit, I think, harsher in the consulting world than in other places. Um, so what, what is something that you, you feel that early on um, that bothered you and, and had you overcome it? Yeah, I think that uh, early on, I, I sometimes wasn't necessarily listening as well as I should be. And that means that clients are telling you something, your project managers are telling you something. And really early in your career, how do you synthesize different pieces of information, put it together and ultimately do your job best is not necessarily easy to do. And sometimes you might just follow one of the paths that you've that are either in your head or you're following the advice of just one person, but then you you might be uh, getting somebody else into a bad position in terms of you didn't listen to them and now they don't like your work, right? So um, yeah, that that was an early lesson for so, me. So how did you get to Tube Mogul, right? I mean, you know, I think Free was before, but how did you get to Tube Mogul? And you know, from there, I think you, you jumped to video app. Yeah, I, I think for me, the my, my digital career in video really was accelerated at Yahoo. So um, that was that was prior to Free Will, and that was early on the emerging media teams at Yahoo where we were working on video distribution, things like the uh, the original MLB streaming on Yahoo Sports. You know, these are some pretty foundational things. This, just to be clear, this is when Yahoo was, you know, two thousand eight. Yeah, they, yeah. they were worth they were worth like you know, billions upon billions of dollars. It was right after the time Microsoft had offered thirty three billion, <laughs> right? And, and this, it, this is when things were turned down. Yeah, <laughs> so it was still a very large, important media property, and and from an audience and video distribution perspective, uh, it was bigger at that time still than than YouTube. Right, YouTube comes out of nowhere and blows everyone away. But at that point, there was a lot of interesting things happening with the creation of advertiser, original content, the sports distribution opportunities. Because you think about the leagues back then, they didn't really have a big MLB.com or you know, any of these sort of owned and operated experiences that you have now today. Now all the sports leagues have their own channels, even on cable and all their own OTT apps and things like that. But this is early on where they were looking for a partner who had streaming technology and an audience. And and Yahoo delivered that. There was also the original Yahoo connected TV widgets. So really the foundational <laughs> platform for smart TVs. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of great lesson learned for me um, at Yahoo. And then from there, that's when I went to Freewheel. And that was really an amazing experience and understanding how the premium television industry works. Right At that time, you have the big networks and cable networks figuring out how they wanted to get into digital distribution and figuring out what the sales rights were between that who is the owner of the content and then that who is the distribution platform, right? Those distribution platforms were, again, like Yahoo and YouTube and AOL. Early on, Microsoft Xbox was one of the first connected screen experiences where you could get apps on your Xbox mm -hmm. and watch video. So FreeWheel was really uh, instrumental in creating those distribution and monetization capabilities for the whole industry. 
And uh, so a very sell-side monetization distribution approach. Um, and then uh, I was able to take that knowledge and, and go to TubeMogul, which was a more buy-side focused platform, right? It was one yeah. of the original demand-side platforms focused on video, if not the original one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is at the time where it wasn't that you could buy premium video using RTB, right? So real-time bidding was more of a, 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 an instrument of the display industry, but programmatic started to creep into premium video, and especially when you had these wide distribution networks, right, which was I was seeing earlier uh, when I was at Freewheels. So uh, it was great to then go into a more buy-side um, understanding how agencies and their trading desk operations worked. TubeMobile was also very early in going to brands directly and under, helping them understand the value of programmatic and how to get more return on ad spend by using more efficient means for their advertising and understanding then customer data, right? All of these big brands are now, especially today, right? Invested heavily in marketing clouds and infrastructure on how to understand their customers. So, you know, looking at the whole industry um, for me has been amazing to be at a very large consumer direct type platform like Yahoo, then going into understanding how the sell side works with Freewheel, then going into TubeMobile and understanding how the buy side works. At, at TubeMobile, I was responsible for all the partnerships with supply and data, so DMPs, mm-hmm. and then um, being able to translate all of that into VideoMap, right? And that's where, uh, you know, I joined the the founding team pretty early on. Uh, it was, uh, I think, under 10 people at that point. And uh, it was really a chance to take a look at all of the other players and, and things that have been built and think about what's going to be the next wave of technology and business model that's truly going to solve for the, the convergence of TV and digital. And I really felt that uh, that that possibility was there with uh, the, the early team at Video and just given their immense drive and expertise in engineering and data science from the get-go. So where, where, did, where did the founding team come from? Like where, you know, you, so you left, you know, you left TubeMogul, go to VideoAmp, you're pretty much one of the first 10 employees. Where did they come from and, and, you know, how, you know, what was the vision when they started out? Yeah, the, uh, the co-founders, Ross McRae, who is uh, the CEO and co-founder, and Dave Gullo, who was the co-founder and uh, was the CTO, they, they both had backgrounds in, uh, in video and data. So Ross is a, you know, he's, he's the kind of guy that, that started at UCLA as a teenager, right? And mm-hmm. was building his first companies at the age of 17. Um, and one of his early startups was a viral video concept on how to get videos to go viral on YouTube. So understanding how virality worked in such a new and emerging platform like VideoLamp and figuring that out and built a whole business uh, uh, called Channel Factory from there. And so that was, I think, a lot of his foundation and understanding where this is coming from. Dave is, uh, he's kind of like a, a legendary hacker and tech guru. And he had um, helped build some of the early platforms and engineering teams at, at Crux, right, which was acquired by Salesforce. Mm-hmm. He was a early, uh, early engineer at Zimride, which became Lyft. Um, he had done a ton of work in terms of helping staff and build the engineering team at Brightroll. So both of them had uh, different levels of experience, but both were coming at it with an idea that there was going to be something here around the convergence of, of video in terms of all of its forms, including television. So w- when did they start seeing traction? Where When did you start seeing traction? Um, okay, you, you hit the ground running. 
Yeah, I mean, we, we hit the ground running in, in the sense that we had an idea of, of where we wanted to go. And we had to also monitor the industry pretty closely because at this at this time, you know, the company was founded in 2014. Um, I came on in, in 2015. And that's a time where you also had some initial ad tech companies failing in the public markets, right? So the industry analysts and, and Wall Street analysts we're not very high on some of the business models in ad tech, right? Because sometimes they're hard to predict. Mm-hmm. And this is the time where Google and Facebook were just amassing the duopoly, which it is today, right? I mean, the, the, the rate of change in which they were able to accelerate how much of the market growth that they were able to suck up um, was really just hitting its stride in these couple of years. So it was a difficult environment. And, uh, you know, the company had been, um, seeded with a, a $2.2 million round initially from some investors in Southern California and Silicon Valley that uh, that Ross and Dave were, were able to raise. And when I came on board, the, the, the goal was to raise the Series A, right? So I think our ability to craft some early um, business models as well as technology proof of concepts on how cross-screen would work. Back in this time, you're still dealing with things like a device graph mm-hmm. and how a device graph would ultimately extend to devices that are televisions, um, devices that are set-top boxes, which are still important things that we're working on today. But we were able to, to get ahead of that. And then we were able to find um, a partner in RTL to, to lead the Series A. And RTL had been pretty active in investing in the MCNs on YouTube, right? So those networks that are um, multi-channel on, on, on YouTube, they were... Um, they made a, a sizable investment in SpotX and an investment in Clips. So they had also looked at different ad tech assets in the video and television space. So we were we were a good fit to to help fit into that portfolio. Got it. And so you you know you came on after the first round, right? So you know, the seed round, the, right? seed, the seed round, and then then you pretty much raised um, got Media Ocean to, to to come in uh, for I think it was a Series B where they led it with twenty one million round. Yeah, the, the, the round was 21 million. They came in with 13, yeah. right? RTL was also an investor in the B. So, so, well. so, yeah. so how do you get Media Ocean in? It's also in the ethics space. I mean, yeah. you know, so uh, how do you, you, you know, how do you guys, you know, they approach you, you approach them? How, how did it come to be? Yeah, I had known some people at Media Ocean for, for quite some time and uh, reached out to them when we were starting to get into some scoping of work in which. If you want to bring data to television and you want to integrate television and digital into the same order, if you will, right, to put it into, I think, just very um, easy to understand business terms, you had various different systems between the sellers and the buyers on how these transactions and orders would take place. And really, the the highway in which all that money travels, for the most part, for national television is media machine. And also, you know, their digital products were used quite a bit in terms of insertion orders going back and forth between buyers and sellers. So uh, we thought that we would show them what we were doing and try to partner together to create a more next gen solution that would apply what we were developing around cross screen data and machine learning driven optimizations Mm -hmm. and being able to plug that seamlessly into the infrastructure that they already had. And uh, you know, we were able to find uh, a few big holding companies that were also very interested in this concept. 
And so we created a partnership and it was around the time we were looking to raise the Series B. And ultimately we came to a conclusion that it would be a good idea for Media Ocean, who is owned by Vista Private Equity, to, to lead that round and ensure that we had that right level of integration and partnership to really help bring some next generation solutions to the media industry. Got it. So you know, I, I'm going to speak a little bit more about funding, and then we'll move on from there. So then, you know, then you raise your, your, your recent round, right? Seventy million. That's a that's a hefty hefty sum, right? And so you know, you're, you're getting good traction, and you start in 2014. You know, we're five years later, um, and so with the seventy now, you know, where do you want to go with that, right? So you, are you looking to just gobble up more of the small companies, making some more of a powerhouse, of course, platform? I mean, give us a little yeah. bit of the and then yeah, we'll so, just jump more into the go go backwards a bit. Sure, Th- you know this round was a combination of a of a late 2018 C round that was uh, completely done by Encona Capital. So one of the founders of Encona Capital, John Bausch, uh, was the earliest investor in VideoAmp. He and Ross actually worked together back at Channel Factory. John went and then joined a venture firm called Anthem Venture Partners, and then eventually created his uh, own firm with a partner called Encona, and they raised uh, 20 million of this round. And then uh, the Rain Group is the is the one who really took the rest of the D and put in the 50 million here. So giving us a total of 70 million between a late late stage C and then following right into a D, right? And I think, uh, you know, the, the Encona specialty is in building uh, growth, high growth enterprise software companies. And so that expertise is very important to us as we try to operationalize our growth around different parts of our, our software and solution set. And the Rain Group is a powerhouse in media, right? It's a combination of partners who formed the fund that all have uh, incredible backgrounds in finance, media, and entertainment, right? Uh, you know, including Ari Emanuel, he's part of the, the fund as well. The LPs that have invested in Rain are, you know, large holding companies like WPK, large media companies. Um, and they've done really well, right? They just, uh, they were an initial investor in Cheddar TV, which yeah, sold last so week. So the combination now of, of the investors we have, um, I think gives us a great foundation for where the media and entertainment industry is going in terms of how are they going to optimize customer experiences and how are they going to enable marketers to actually drive results from things that maybe at one time weren't thought of as results-oriented pro- um, platforms like television. So um, it's been it's been a great experience to see the the different expertise coming to us from all of the various investors that now we have in the company. Got it. And are they active investors? They're passive. Do you lean on them a bit, or they just like give you your 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 space and you run with it? I think it's a it's a good combination. You know, we we have a new board member, uh, Peter Liguri, who joined us uh, as a as an independent board member that uh, Rain helped bring to the table. And, and Peter brings amazing experience to us. He's the most recent CEO of the Tribune Media Company, um, mm-hmm. which was recently sold. He was the COO of Discovery. He's one of the foundational executives in FX. He was an early board member at Yahoo. So just that level of executive experience uh, is great mentorship for the executive team at VideoAmp. The, uh, you know, the RTL group is a very active global organization, right? So we are active partners with other parts of the RTL ecosystem. Um, we, they organize our presence in part at big events like this year. We're doing some partnership with them in Cannes. 
Um, they're one of the, RTL is one of the foundational members of DMEXCO in Germany, which is now probably the largest ad and MarTech conference mm -hmm. in the world. And, uh, you know, their presence there is huge and we're a part of that. So, yeah, I would say that uh, it's it's pretty active. It's not necessarily passive just because we have strategics that are in us. Um, and we actively right now are working on several integrations with MediaOcean. So, um, you know, I would say that it's uh, it's not a thanks for the money. We'll let you know in a quarter <laughs> how we're doing. I think we're, we're actively engaged with them on several business activities on a global basis. Which is which is great to see. I mean, that's I think I think any, you know, a startup out there would rather have a strategic partnership as an investor than just okay, here's the money and you know come back to us whenever. You know, the, the, you, your guys are somewhat vested in your success more so than just yeah. giving money. As long as you manage it so that you're you're using your investors to help fuel your growth, correct? Right? correct. Not just through cash, yeah. but also through creating new business opportunities. Yeah. Correct. All right, so we're going to go go back a bit now. So you you, you started. You know, what was early on, what was the tough part when you joined VidaWeb? Well, it was, it, again, it was a very difficult time to come out and say, hey, we're going to be the next best video DSP. It had to be more than that. And that's not easy to do when you're a small team. How much can one small team build at once, right? And we had uh, some interesting opportunities in Europe at the same time as opportunities in the U.S., so you're forced with making these decisions. Should we go after something that might be, oddly enough, European-led that is advanced in terms of where the U.S. market is? Or should we try to get ourselves established here and then move across and, and try to figure those things out? So we had a lot of dilemmas on where to allocate precious resources, which I think is similar to any startup. And how did you decide where to go? Sometimes the, the market decides for you, right? So you know, we, we thought we had something going in Europe that we were selected to build, and then it looked like that changed. So then we quickly picked up the other opportunities here in the U.S. and focused on building out our presence here in New York. And um, you know that was obviously a really good move for us. So when you, when you first started, like, so who, are you, who is your end user, right? Was it the publisher? Was it more the advertiser? It was, yeah, it was, was an agency trading agency. desk trader. That was our original customer. Okay. And how hard was it to get them on board to buy? Very, because they were all deeply embedded using Google products or using Trade Desk or using TubeMobile. Yeah. Um, you know, TubeMobile at that point it was, was really more focusing on the brands versus the, the holding companies. So it was, um, it was a challenge. I think we then um, showed that we had a few extra bells and whistles. We were very early into OTT and building out opportunities with premium video um, you know I was able to uh, I think leverage my relationships with the premium publishers through my freewheel experience and including an integration with freewheel which was early around how to use data to buy more premium video and I think those things helped give us an edge plus we had uh, our data science team had developed some really ahead of the curve optimization capabilities around things like video completion rates at this point in time, you still had a lot of questions around viewability because there was a lot of low quality inventory in the market. And we were able to optimize to getting to your target audience, getting the right level of completion rate, very high completion rates, and getting the industry's highest viewability scores. Those are the things that helped us start to fuel the growth on that. And then we leveraged that and then to, to quickly build our linear TV solution. And now today we have um, two different enterprise grade stacks of software, a programmatic stack, 
and then a enterprise stack that consists of planning, data, and measurement. So, um, you know, those those things and pleasing your early customers and then leveraging that success into quickly getting to where your vision is as a company, uh, we, we were able to do that. That's not always easy to do. And, and what was your revenue model? It was uh, SaaS, was it, you know, what, what, you know, walk us through. And has it changed in the time that you started? Like, did it move from 2014 to date? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when when you're in the, this space, you're going to have to have multiple business models, right? So using um, the the standard MSA, right, with an agency and having uh, basically a percentage of the media that goes through your platform that you take as your tech fee. That was the original model that most of the programmatic industry started with, and we started with that as well. We were able to then also build on additional services around data and some of the measurement, and we partnered very closely with all the different players in the, in the ad tech ecosystem, and that was another way to scale revenue by usage-based models around these different tools and technologies. And then as we built out our enterprise stack, we now have more committed annual license fees with unit economics that scale with use. Um, And this business model is obviously more advantageous for a a company like ours because when you're in the DSP space, you're maybe one of five or six that are being used and you're always fighting for that mind share. But in the way that our planning and allocation systems are being used and our data segments are being used, it's more top of the the funnel, right? It's at the strategic planning layer. So before the budgets ever get to programmatic, which is where then all the programmatic platforms fight for their budget, we're actually helping articulate the overall strategy for TV and video holistically, uh, which is a very powerful position to be in. And it's that kind of software that then you're not one of many you're usually the one or maybe one of two, and therefore you have a stronger committed financial relationship with your customers. Got it. And so, you know, you're doing all this and you're scaling, right? How hard is it to scale, though, right? I mean, you, you, you didn't have, you know, you did it in a short time span, right? You know, and from, you know, finding the right, you know, hires, bring them on again. How many people are you today? We're hovering around 190. So close to 200. And you were number in the, in the top 10. And so that is a really big ramp up over that time span. I mean, so, you know, how, how do you do that? And, and you know, what type of people are you looking for? Where do you find them? You know, how did they integrate into the culture? And to that point, even, how were you, how are you building the culture in, in, in a video app? Yeah, I... Uh... I would say that you know this is this is the kind of question that that Ross loves to answer. He is uh, very very focused on culture, and culture. I think from the ethos of the founding team, especially him, I think really centers around growth, right? Personal growth in both you know your health, your skills and expertise, your abilities to work with clients and partners. It's it's really centered around that. Um, how to better yourself. And when you better yourself, you better your company. And when you have a team that is all feeling and growing in that same way, then you attend to start attracting others that feel that way, right? So I think that focus on, on that kind of cultural pillar from the earliest days has stuck with us, right? Um, you know, we, we have fitness programs, we fund people to go and take 
um, learning classes. Some people go and travel and go learn something. Uh, we have a lot of very interesting perks for employees that I'd say go beyond perks. Perks almost sounds cheap, right? When it's not about food and snacks. This is really about mm-hmm. by working at VideoLand, do you actually help yourself get closer to your personal missions in life, whether it's your career or personal life? And that's the kind of support I think that the company gives to each other. And from that, uh, that's how we've been trying to recruit. Now, this is probably the most competitive job market in 50 years. Mm-hmm. And you're trying to hire full stack engineers, enterprise grade salespeople, data scientists, data engineers, top quality UX people. Mm-hmm. These are to get a players. They have many, many different options. So how you recruit, retract and retain talent has to also become a core function in the company. And uh, we now have an in-house talent team Mm. and are trying to do a lot more of this in-house. We've worked with some amazing outside firms that have gotten absolutely star quality people from some of these firms. But that's also not scalable in terms of how do you really centralize that? How do you actually do it in a way that's more cost effective in the long run? So we now have a talent organization that's in-house. And now getting the talent organization who comes with expertise to be able to then help us interview better and more efficiently, right? So if we know what it generally means for a comp- for a person to be successful at VideoLamp, then how do we actually ensure that we are getting to those things in the interview process and that we don't have too many interviews because that's now going to actually work against us with a candidate. Mm-hmm. So we're still getting good. We're still getting better at this. Guys, so you brought an in-house team. Um, how many offices do you have now? We have one, two, three, four, five, six offices now. And and do you do you got do you and you know Ross travel to the offices? Do you keep the company culture cohesive? Is it hard for the teams to integrate sometimes? Yeah, I mean, when you we also have some people that are in outer markets where there isn't an office, right? We we have somebody in Texas, we have someone in Atlanta. We have someone in Minneapolis, we have a Chicago office that's growing, we have someone in Detroit. So when we have the distributed sales force, you, you do need to make sure that they're getting supported. So um, our head of sales is here in New York and, and he and our head of national sales, she also goes and, and travels to the different offices. Um, Ross makes his trips as well. I go a couple times to, to different places. So there, there is good um, distributed executive support to, to try to make sure these people are successful. We also now have design product and engineering taking place outside of Baltimore and in Boston. Um, we made an acquisition last year of a company called Iron Grid Technologies. That's right. I remember that. And you recently launched a product. Yeah, they've been instrumental in helping us actually assemble what we want to be the industry's largest and highest quality TV data asset. Mm -hmm. And they come with a bunch of experience in working with these data sets for more than 12 years and and processing what it is, noisy data and making it useful. So they're, they know lots of people in the Boston area that have this expertise, right? So we're not going to just try to find everybody in Southern California to do this. Let's let the experts we've brought into the company build out teams with people that they know and trust can do the work. Um, so that's happened as well with uh, our teams outside of Baltimore. Our, our head of engineering came from Oath, and he had got uh, to know and work with a lot of great people outside of that Baltimore area. So we decided let's build an office there. Let's let's <laughs> let's let them yeah. attract and, and bring more talent to the table. 
And now we have to figure out how to keep the culture consistent. And we also have to figure out how to have teams work in a more distributed fashion. You can't just have everyone huddle around the kitchen now and, and have a quick meeting. You got to organize it, but we've got uh, video conferencing everywhere. So everyone can jump on a, on a zoom or a, a Google meet and, and have those kinds of meetings, but it's new disciplines where you can't just look at the person next to you. Now you have to coordinate it. Correct. And so, you know, what did you, I mean, you know, you were saying about, you know, giving your employees, you know, gro- growth in, in, in their personal involvement. Uh, um, you know, is, is that what you want for your employees from video up when they leave or, you know, when their time is that, are you, like, what, what do you guys want to give to them? And again, what I, what I mean by that is when they, when someone comes to video app, is there something that you say, okay, they're going to be here, let's ideally long term. Uh, we want them to succeed. And is there, how do you quantify that? I do promote from within. Do you give them opportunities to excel? Yeah, we, we promote a lot from within. I think that's been one of the tools for us. Um, you know, I think most everybody who is in leadership in our sales organization, uh, outside of the, the head of sales or CRO that we brought in, uh, everybody has grown themselves to become a sales leader. And we've then hired other young, ambitious, growth-oriented sellers to work underneath those people. And within two years, they're now mentoring and growing. And that structure has worked. Same thing within our product and engineering teams, right? It's a lot of people who came in early and then really just dedicated themselves to the company. So we then promoted them. And then as we've scaled, we've now had to bring in other additional outside management. So mm-hmm. we just didn't have enough early people to all be in management positions for the kind of growth that we're, that we're bringing in. So now we're bringing in outside experienced managers to work alongside those leaders that have been homegrown. Mm-hmm. But I think everybody in the company realizes that if you are creating a lot of value, working well, and it's clear that you're going to get recognized and rewarded for it, and and the promotions from within have been a, a huge trademark for the company. Got it. And you know we're going to shift a little focus here now. So you know being part of management, you know mistakes happen, right? Challenges. What was the most difficult time or conundrum that you you that you've been in, uh, and and what did you do to overcome it? Yeah, we, we came to a point where in order to really fully go after the, the unification of television and digital with uh, that technology stack that you know, includes planning, workflow, data, and yeah. measurement, that we would have to pivot away from the self-service DSP model and transition our business and programmatic to a more solutions-oriented business. We do things on the digital side that are pretty unique. So we can actually create actual reach extension from television to digital and measure that. You know, we call that TV maximizer. We create the segments. We index the existing TV plan. So this is the kind of work that actually requires people to be hands-on and then leveraging the tools. So we transition those solutions to be done by video amp teams so that we could then build this other stack that would end up being self-service. So you're transitioning saying, we're not competing with the trade desk and DBM for hands-on keyboard traders. We instead are going to offer those clients who want these more advanced TV to digital solutions Mm -hmm. to use video amps 
solution sets and our marketing sciences teams. And then on the other piece of the business to then focus building on that, which was then going to be used by a whole new set of research, planning, and investment teams. So that was a very important uh, milestone for the company in terms of being able to make that decision and be able to transition the business and the teams from that. From that. that was not uh, an easy thing to do. Got it. And, and, you know, in terms of your management style, I mean, is there certain things that you worked on to better yourself at? Or yeah. what is your management style? Let's yeah, I, I think for I can you know for me personally, I think all of our executives have a bit different um, mm-hmm. elements of style. I think what unites the team is uh, again around this this personal growth and and career growth and company growth that that intersects. Um, I I tend to want to hire self starters who come with ideas and then let them run mm-hmm. and support them and act more as a door opener and an editor versus a day-to-day manager. I guess I, I believe if you have to hire people that you're micromanaging, then you're probably not growing as fast as you could. And in a space which is evolving as fast as ours, and which is as competitive as ours, I think our advantage as a company is being innovative and being able to find ways to partner in the market that others haven't figured out yet. And that's really been one of the the things that's helped make us um, the company we are today. And that's not going to happen if you don't have a team of people that are able to do it. So you're not expecting them day one that everyone who comes in is going to be able to do this. But you have to be able to find that in people and then let that let that inner entrepreneur come out. You know, I, I there was one point I did want to go back to. Right? You made an acquisition. I think it was what 2016 you made. Last year, 2018. 2018. Yeah. Right. So how do you find them? Right. How do you end up, you know, saying, okay, I'm assuming, you, you know, you, you, you work with them, you like them, and then you said, oh, we have a bigger vision. This could be a fit. But how did that come about? Yeah, we were, we were looking at how to partner more effectively with the, the, the cable distribution companies, right? Because the set-top box data, we really believed early on that you have to combine smart TV data and set-top box data to have the most complete footprint that would be accurate to use in all of these different software applications that we're building, that the market is demanding, that the market needs in order for this industry to evolve. So in that process of just being out in market, um, we were introduced to the Iron Grid team, we met Randy Laughlin, who you know is just a great entrepreneur. He lives in Boston. Um, uh, one of our executives, Nick, who I had hired early on, also lived in Boston, and he ended up you know they knew a lot of the same people. So there was a great cultural fit. It seemed early on, and rather than just a partnership, we we determined that being good at TV data was a core capability for the company. So we decided to to make a move and decided that if we bring them in and bring in some of their their software and especially their expertise and the relationships that they had in in the cable industry, that we could instantly leverage that into greater value and it would accelerate our growth and all the other other things that we're trying to do. Got it. Uh, So we're going to wind in one more question with video and then we'll go more into your personal and then we'll wind it down. so what separates video amp from the ethics sector, right? The ethics sector is pretty uh, fragmented. It's consolidating a lot. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of the smaller players are going to the wayside um, or being eaten up. 
Um, so you guys have made imprint. I mean, you know, again, you're on the more OTT, you know, which is where a lot of the video is going. But what separates you? Yeah, I think that the the industry is right now at a point where the largest companies are trying to assimilate and maximize power and influence, right? Which is a natural thing. <clears throat> but the the industry as a whole still needs independent platforms and players. And in order for that to be something that scales, it, it can't just be about point solutions, right? There's a lot of players in the space that are good at one thing, but if you are a TV programmer or you're a brand or you're an agency, it's hard to assemble nine different things and put it together in a way that's useful. So I think our approach and what separates us is that we're trying to actually build the holistic solution, which takes a lot and, you know, it takes a lot of capital, which is, you know, why we've gone down this path. Got it. <laughs> All right. So, you know, throughout your career, and you've been, again, Yahoo, Freewheel, Tumult, I mean, big, big places. Do you have a mentor, someone that you turn to for advice? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's a little unique in that I haven't, I guess, had a consistent one career mentor. I guess I've, I've been able to work closely with the leaders or CEOs of, of all of these different companies, and each of them have served as mentors in certain ways. I think overall, my you know most consistent mentor has been my dad. So you know, he had a very long and established career in corporate engineering, working for uh, Miller Brewing for most of his career. And going through that whole phase of uh, rapid growth, building out operations in multiple states and seeing how he was able to do that as a kid and then just being able to ask him questions about, should I think about this this way or that way? That's really been, uh, I guess, the most consistent thing for me. Interesting. Uh, that's pretty good. <laughs> that's a, that's a good answer on the, on the dad part. And so what did you want to be when you were 15? Did you want to be... In the space, did you want to like? I'm, like I always yeah. like to ask this, like you know, going back, what was your? What did in, you want to do in high school? I think I was convinced I wanted to be a lawyer. Um, <laughs> That's original. <laughs> yeah, I don't know exactly why, but it just felt like that was a, a thing that I wanted to do. And and then as I got to school, I decided to, to apply into the business school, mm -hmm. and I think that's where I really started to just feel more connected to actually the, the things that I was learning. Um, you know, I had done internships and things like that in high school and in college. So I think business was probably always in my DNA. I thought maybe that I wanted to be a lawyer, but then ultimately the lure of uh, building things and, and seeing things grow, which is really what business is all about. And yeah. even to this day, it still excites me, right? There's always something new to build a new project to go after, a new deal to create and craft. And every day I wake up still excited to, to go out and do that. Awesome. And is there something that you do on a daily basis that keeps on top of your game? Exercise. Uh, exercise. Okay. Yep. It's mental and physical. It establishes that routine. And uh, I'm always better that whole day if I start my day with exercise. Lately, I'm also trying to get better at taking a few minutes in the morning of just being quiet and then actually writing out your priorities for the day. Everyone's got an electronic calendar. Um, mine is exceptionally disastrous. <laughs> and and uh, um, being able to not just be reactive to the notifications on your phone and your calendar, 
Because if you do, you spend your whole day reacting to the world's priorities, then you don't achieve your own. And that only happens if you actually really intentionally plan what you want to focus on. And uh, that's something that I, you know, I, I'm working on for myself. I think it's something that I know Ross does very well. And I'm trying to make more of the people on our teams do it. And that way you just have a, a better, more in control day and you feel like you've accomplished something instead of feeling like you're on that hamster wheel. Got it. And so besides the plugged in podcast, which I'm sure you listen to and whoever is listening, which is my growing audience, feel free to rate us on uh, Google and iTunes and every other platform out there. Um, what podcast do you listen to? If you listen to podcasts, I do. Yeah. There's, um, there's a lot of great ones. I think, uh, you know, forgetting that uh, that technology news. I, I like the TechCrunch Equity podcast. It goes through financings and dissects all these IPOs that are happening, which is a great way to just quickly get caught up on that kind of thing. In terms of um, the what's gonna what gives you a sense of history a little bit. There's a there's a great podcast called Business Wars that goes through like historic rivalries, you know, like mm -hmm. Coke versus Pepsi and things like yeah. that. Um, those are exciting uh, in terms of being able to, to look at that. Malcolm Gladwell has some great podcasts. So I try to, to keep it pretty diverse and uh, I've got a pretty active Audible account as well. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. It's great to uh, sit and talk with you and uh, look forward to seeing awesome things from VideoAmp. Thank you very much. Love this episode of the Plugged In Podcast? Head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. It's very much appreciated. Thank you. Thank you for listening to C-Suite Radio, turning the volume up on business. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.